0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This conversation was recorded prior to the arrest and charging of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for third degree murder and second degree manslaughter of George Floyd. As of June 2nd, three bystanding officers have yet to be arrested. Today, I am blessed to be speaking with Whitney Parnell, about sustaining the movement of justice that we hope and long for and live for and breathe in and out every day, even amid a pandemic. Whitney is the founder and CEO of Service Never Sleeps, an innovative nonprofit guiding conversations and training about effective allyship. Whitney is an activist, a writer, a musician, A movement leader and a quote professional humanitarian, as people would say about her. Whitney, welcome to the soul of the nation. We are so excited to have you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to hear your voice, Jim, and be virtually in proximity with you.
0: So, Whitney, I have to ask you in a day like today, um, how is your spirit? How is your spirit?
1: Uh, My spirit is holding a lot right now. Um, It is. End of May and uh, yesterday flooded with so much news that is the reminder of anti-blackness that has existed for centuries and that I've been experiencing and existing in 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 these few millennial years of life. Um, so I am holding a lot of um, devastation, rage, f- exhaustion. Uh, conviction and intentionally trying to hold on to hope uh, amidst what feels like going around in circles
0: so here we are talking um, right after the news is is full last night and today of the latest example, just the latest example of police violence against black lives on Memorial Day in Minneapolis. George. Floyd was killed at the hands of police. And the image that we've all seen now over and over is this video of a white cop with his knee on George Floyd's throat, his neck, with the man saying, I can't breathe, and then dying on the ground. So, at a personal level and at a level of how we must stop this, and how do we stop this, and what it means for allies to commit to stop this. Um, what, can you ta- what can you say to us on a day like this?
1: <sighs> There's a lot to say to that. And I'll start off by naming that even having this dialogue requires so much of me. And, you know, that quite frankly, as a personality, I'm very private and handle pain privately, but recognize the importance of creating this proximity through sharing my truth primarily through the lens of a Black woman that thus informs sort of my profession for equipping effective allies. Does that make sense? So, uh, you know, I want to start off by saying that quite frankly, part of what was so Profound about yesterday was the order in which I heard the two pieces of news. What I first heard in news was about that horrific situation with a woman and her dog and very much weaponizing the fact that she was going to call the police on an African-American man and tell them that he was threatening her, with the tone in her voice being clear that she knew exactly what the implications would be for a white woman calling in distress about a Black man with a whole context of history for how that has resulted in the historic and contemporary lynching of so many Black people, particularly Black men. So to be seeing that and holding so much rage about the implications of all of that only to literally minutes afterwards hear from my dad say, "Did you see the news and hear the news about another black man getting killed?" and jumping straight to that. It was like a twofold punch, right? And and it what quite frankly, symbolically it was also a lot to navigate. Not only do we kind of even see the before and after, right? We see so many white people who are in distress or false fear or, quite frankly, out of manipulation, calling the police. And then what the outcomes of that can be by another black life being stripped away from us. Right. So there's holding that. But even holding how I was trying to handle so much of yesterday, which was seeing this video of this white woman and then spending the entire day trying to avoid the video of this man being choked out. I don't need to see any more videos of Black people being senselessly killed. I know that that happens, and it triggers me and traumatizes me beyond measure to have to see that all the time. And the fact that I've seen snippets of it still, despite my adamant trying to avoid because of how much it's penetrated media, because of how much um, people have posted that and shared that on social media, one thing that I can just go ahead and say up front is Black people don't need to be re triggered and re traumatized by videos. And I get a lot of texts from white colleagues who have the best of intention being like, did you see this? Did you, did you hear about this? And sending me videos like that. I've been avoiding these videos for years, but the fact that I couldn't avoid it says something. So something on aim is think about what you're sharing and how you can share information while being sensitive to how someone might be triggered or harmed by that. So lifting all of that up, just the duality of so much. And then I spent so much of yesterday, just like, how do I handle this? Because quite frankly, when we had, when we just weeks ago were dealing with Ahmad Arbery and Brianna Taylor, I spent so much time and even talking to my colleague at Service Never Sleeps, who is a Black man saying, do I need to say something? Do I need to say something? And I'm so grateful for him because he said, well, where, do you want to say something? And I was like, right now, I can't. I can't put in that emotional labor to do this for the sake of handholding. I can't do it. And so I made that choice just a few weeks ago to to not come forth with like a service never sleep statement. Right. Which is my organization. But by last night, I was like, I have to say something because enough is enough. Enough has been enough. But enough is most definitely enough now. And so it's very timely, Jim, that we already had this time on the calendar to now be speaking about this, because enough truly is enough. I have a lot to say, and I hope that it is heard and received with the intention of centering the voice of a black person as opposed to criminalizing that even further.
0: Well, this was planned to talk together about allyship and your core message here about what it means to be allies, which we're going to get into uh, what service never sleeps does, but let's ask that question right now. What does it mean to be allies in the midst of this, of a a black man jogging on a sunny afternoon and being stalked and shot and killed like literally like a lynching. uh, And then a young woman, Brianna, who's an who's a EM, EMT and she's in her bed, right? And all the allies, white allies, who are against this and appalled by this and speak as you're talking about organization speak. But what does it mean for white allies to say it's not, we're not just against this. This must be intolerable, unacceptable, unacceptable, uh, Aren't allies don't we have to sort of don't we have to make these things somebody said to me this morning, a young black man, he said, Do you think this will be a tipping point? I mean, how many times have we heard that, right? Will this will Gardner in New York, will Trayvon, will Michael Brown, will will Ahmad will will this young, this man, be a tipping point. What does that mean? What what does it mean? What does allyship mean, I'm trying to say for you right now at a moment like this?
1: Allyship means centering, support, solidarity, action, right? Because the, the first piece is centering, right? It's listening and quite frankly, believing Because not only is it just so traumatizing to live over what I always call this overlooming cloud of what if and fear, right? Like this is just a demonstration of the fact that Blackness in itself puts us in danger. We literally can't do anything in life without having to worry about that potentially being seen as threat or that being disregarded enough not to care, right? We can't run. We can't sleep in our own home. Uh we can't sell water. We can't barbecue. We try can't try to get into our own home. We can't try to get into our community pool, right? We can't do so many we can't laugh with our friends. All of these are literal examples that we've seen in the news of black people being killed, right? And that isn't us overreacting. That is us speaking truth. So the first piece is when I always say Uh, between my privilege and someone else's marginalization, the person who knows better about what's harmful to them and what their experience is, is the person who is marginalized, right? So we've got to be listened to when we call out the fact that we are existing in anti-Blackness all the time, right? And so what has been so harmful about even just the past, what has it been for me, like 36 hours even, is just even the reactions that have come from this, which I can break down into several buckets, right? I can break down the reaction that comes from the wrongdoer, and I knew this was coming. It's wild because I was talking to my mom about this over the weekend, and I was saying how whenever something racist happens, the, the wrongdoer says, "I'm not a racist." I know this like the back of my hand. This is the work that I do, right? And it's of course, as soon as this incident in New York happened, it was, "I'm not a racist." And so, first, that's one reaction, right? Where we hear people, there's so much that turns so much into an issue of one's character, rather than acknowledging the harm of racism, that then becomes the focal point. So there's that. I also hear so much from then supporters of the wrongdoer, right, almost as if it feels like it's a a binary that you can, um, you can want, you can't, like you can't hold someone accountable and still want to see them as human and love them, right? So hearing so many people say things like, well, I know them and they're not racist, or maybe the Black person was doing something that made them feel like something had to be happened. We haven't heard the whole story, or furthermore, even arguing that the wrongdoer is being unfairly victimized now for the public harm that they've caused, right? Like all this attention goes towards just um, pity and support towards the wrongdoer and complete further criminalization of the one who was already harmed. And then quite frankly, Lastly, what I often see happen is that I see white people react out of of fragility by default, where you then hear this narrative uplifted where people are saying, not all white people, where black people are talking about all this harm and white people by default feel like they're being attacked to which I'm like, It's not even about you in the tidiest way, right? So, even just the idea of centering, it sounds so silly, right? Like listen, but even that just comes with so many problems when it comes to our allies not even being able to do that. So, the first piece is just that is listening, believing, taking that in, and then action comes from there, which I can also talk about.
0: So, you're talking about what is normal for Black. Lives, bodies, and families all the time. And now we're in this uh, COVID crisis, and so many people talk about, well, I want to go back to normal. So COVID has laid bare so much of this. COVID has, has revealed unequal suffering, racially disproportionate, three times African-Americans get to one for whites, getting it and six times dying. And now all the labor on the front lines, overwhelmingly black and brown and people wanting to take the risk to get the economy open and get back and who's going to bear the brunt of sickness and death. So COVID is verifying what you're saying. COVID is verifying what you're saying has been normal for a long time. So it's it can't be sort of denied or say well I didn't know. We know. <laughs> we know. It's it's there. It's everyone and no one can deny it. It's that racism and poverty are are um preconditions for this virus.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you I I would hope that that provides some clarity. And to your question about is this the tipping point, sometimes I feel frustration about like, what other proof do you need? Because I wanna name that I'm definitely not the public health expert, right? And so um, I I definitely have my limitations in terms of sort of speaking to the structural racism implied by COVID-19 and, What I will say is that uh, for everybody who has trouble conceptualizing that racism isn't just about character and bad intentions, what is happening with race, with COVID-19, I hope can provide clarity for how we see structural racism, how we see that this is systemic, and that's something that impacts all of society, how the disparities and gaps are made even clearer for those marginalized, particularly Black people.
0: So uh, the mayor of Minneapolis just said, I just got this message here over me Media. Why why aren't the people who committed this murder not in jail? (laughs) They've been fired, apparently, but not in jail. Um, What's your response to hearing that from him?
1: I think it's a valid question considering the current systems that we operate in. I want to name tension that comes from me and the work that I do and my issues uh, with the criminal legal system, because that's not justice, <laughs> right? And, um uh questions around what- restorative justice would mean and and the whole carceral state, right so I do have to just lift up tension in regards to uh my posture with jail uh as a premise uh but I think that the question what the question really does imply here is that why is it the case that uh justice is not seeming to be fully pursued with these with police officers, and that is also. Consistent. If you have a system where there aren't exactly repercussions, and quite frankly, a system that protects officers from taking life, uh, it's you know it's very difficult to prosecute police officers. Um, if you've got a system like that, then that just becomes made clear with examples like this. So I absolutely do lift up the notion of why is the same um, intentionality around seeking justice for those who have done wrongdoing, not being applied to when an officer is the wrongdoer.
0: As our mutual friend Brittany Packnett often says, leader of Campaign Zero, how very, very few police are ever prosecuted or held justice for these lethal acts of violence against Black lives and Bodies and so in this case there was there uh, were they were fired and none of us have examined this yet. Keith Ellison was on TV last night saying, as Attorney General, he's going to get to the bottom of this, and I expect Keith Ellison will I trust his intention here. But you know, so they were fired. Well, um, until people are held to account legally, those systems which protect the police, which you just mentioned, they're operative the prosecutorial systems, the police unions, the culture inside police stations, uh, until somehow uh, white police officers know they can't get away with this anymore, that they'll be held to account, that they'll be held to the law. And you're saying we need a fair and decent and just and restorative criminal justice system for all of us which you're exactly right but people are held accountable or they're not and until police officers know that they're going to be held accountable, this won't be a tipping point
1: that's that's so true and and there's a lot to take away from that um, a whole lot that accountability is so critical and quite frankly I even hold that with with tension. Just in terms of uh, my trust in a system enacting that accountability, uh, given that we've seen so much systemically swept under the rug when it comes to this, right? Like, as much as I don't want to see these videos and shouldn't, I wonder with Ahmad Arbery having been killed in February, would there have been any outrage and accountability sought? had the public not been made aware.
0: We know the answer to that. The answer is no. Without a video, it never would have happened.
1: Yep. And so it leads to so many deeper implications just about the disregard of Black life furthermore, and really also deeper implications about, about the fact that when we talk about addressing that system, I get very concerned when people try to speak about bad Apple police officers right? And bad apple police officers who have a lens of racial bias and don't care when really we have to acknowledge the premise of anti-blackness off of which a lot of that system was founded and operates. And so that whole system has to be addressed, period, uh, because that whole system then implicitly even impacts how individuals are carrying forth. Their role as police officers.
0: You mentioned New York, and what comes to mind as I sit here talking to you is, uh, we had a retreat for faith leaders uh, in Ferguson uh, several months after Michael Brown was killed, and we were we were being we were being led and taught, and we had conversations with the Ferguson leaders, with uh, with Brittany and all the leaders there, and it was a powerful time together of faith leaders and these emerging Black Lives Matter movement leaders together. In the middle of that, in the middle of that time, after we had just been walking around together, the news of Eric Gardner came from New York. That the the man who did this was not going to be prosecuted. And one of the one of the young men who was leading us around from the movement there who had been just wonderfully, uh, you know, uh, just leading us and teaching and warm and responsive, he just stopped and he screamed and he said, "Even a video, it doesn't matter. Even they had a damn video, and it didn't even matter. They had the video. It's right there." He was just screaming and wailing in our midst, and that's what happened after. I'm an Arbury again. And and Brianna, so many people of color are exhausted by screaming and wailing and wonder when allies are going to stand up.
1: I've been thinking about the past several years, particularly since Black Lives Matter has come about. And I've been thinking a lot about the talk that Black guardians give their loved ones um, about what happens if they encounter a police and how doesn't matter what you did, just, if you're wrong or right, just do these things to get home to me alive. I actually wrote a song about it called The Talk. Um, and I, I thought a few years ago about how maybe this was the tipping point. These phones catching these videos would show society, see, this is real. This is happening. This is nothing new for us that we've been doing this for decades, centuries even. But now you have this proof. And I do want to name that to a certain extent that has definitely opened up a whole new perspective and a whole swath of allies in ways that we may not have seen had they not been having this proof. But then here we are in 2020 with yet another name, fresh off of two names just weeks prior. And it has me asking that same question. Now you know this to be true, but it still keeps happening. So there, all that to say that knowledge... Leads to power, right? But knowledge can spark action. But knowledge alone, without action being taken as a result of that knowledge, quite frankly, is useless in my book. When it comes to my black life, and so I think that's a really important point to bring up. Which also brings me to—I think it's absolutely important that uh, that our allies really hold the criminal legal system accountable and really push for the action that needs to be taken in that regard. But where I also get very concerned, and I see this a lot with any instance of racism, not just police brutality, Uh, as was brought forth by, by this lady in the park in New York, where I start to get concerned is where even when people are trying to be allies by naming the deplorable behavior, what ends up happening is they end up associating that to bad apples, right? To certain people who are a problem and not necessarily turning the mirror on themselves to think about, okay, how could I have easily been this person to do that? And what work do I need to do on myself to make sure that I'm not doing that same thing? Because, you know, I was, I was reading an article that was talking about how this lady with her dog who called the police on this Black man is a liberal right? <laughs> As if there's some sort of belief that if you have a certain mindset about race equity and everything, then you would never be that person to cause harm. But quite frankly, white liberals probably cause me more harm on the daily basis, uh, just given the work that I do and the proximity that I have. Our political affiliation does not make us exempt to systems that we have been systematized to in our privilege. So what I would really charge for white allies is to listen, to have honest dialogue with each other about this listening, but to furthermore have to do the hard work of turning the mirror on themselves and asking what have i what biases have i been systematized in what ways am i complicit in driving these harmful narratives in 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 upholding harmful systems how might i have easily been the person to have dialed 911 when i was in that position and now what can i do to with myself and what processes can i plant in myself to make sure that i'm not that person and that i'm preventative as opposed to what then turns into see those people are a problem, but I'm a great ally over here. You see what I'm saying,
0: Whitney? You go right to the heart of this in an article you wrote for Sojourners in 2019. Now I want to tell people this is before COVID. Before COVID, here's what you write. Here's what you wrote for Sojourners in 2019. You write, "White supremacy is a virus that shows up on individual, interpersonal, and institutional levels." It's a virus that manifests through intentional harm and also through dangerous rhetoric. It's a virus that arguably most often shows up through well-meaning people as bias, microaggressions, hiring practices, and harmful policies. We must be honest and recognize that this virus surrounds us we can't keep avoiding that truth. Many of our lives depend upon.:
1: it. Wow, I should have just read that. <laughs> yeah, I remember writing that article.
0: This was an article that you wrote in 2019 for sojourners about white supremacy and how it, this is a virus and this, so how does that statement, which you just what I just read, takes on new meaning? in our current reality. Can you say more about that? How might we take on a deeper understanding of, of white supremacy as a virus and holding one another accountable in the work of social justice.
1: I also wrote another article for Sojourners that said, please stop calling the police on us. And it was in response to those men having the police called on them at Starbucks in, in Pennsylvania. So just even the timing of that, I think is pretty serendipitous, quite frankly, given the conversation that we're having today.
0: And given the context that we're in, You we're, uh, we're hunkering down, you're hunkering down with your family in Georgia, I'm hunkering down here in a virus. Mm-hmm. And you're pointing out that white supremacy, this whole system, is a virus that yep. surrounds us
1: yep and maybe and maybe f- f- uh, f- in that point, it's really not serendipi- serendipitous at all because it's just always here, <laughs> right? So any time that I would have mentioned it would have been timely enough. But I think whew, there's so much to say about that. The way so I usually break down white supremacy in sort of blatant terms or simple terms. I say as a formula that white supremacy is dominance plus culture. That equals systemic power, and so I, you know, from the dominance piece, it means recognizing the very brutal and intentional and intelligent um, uh, way in which white people took power in this country, in particular. Which, though I recognize that it, it's a global thing, but also this culture, right, white dominant culture, deeming a certain standard for what is right, white being right, right, and that like the combination of that is what is white supremacy that is just all around us. It's the atmosphere that we breathe. It's quite frankly, the founding of this country is based off of those pillars, which is uncomfortable for people. But that is just a truth that we have to recognize amidst a founding that was indigenous genocide and uh, enslavement. Right. Um, And so existing I always say that white supremacy is the institutionalization of white dominance and power, and racism is the structural upholding of that, that then shows up as individual, interpersonal, institutional, and then structural or systemic, right? That is just all around us all the time. And so thus being born as a white person, you are born into that system in a position of privilege. And you know, people have so many reactions to the word privilege. Um, That's one of the things that I've had to assume grace for, given the work that I do. Jim, I can't tell you how many times, as soon as I say privilege, what I get is, how could you say I have privilege? I've worked hard for everything in my life. I hear bootstraps about 12 different times. (laughs) People have such a reaction to privilege. But what I always say is that privilege just means that that aspect of us is favored, embraced, and set up to be able to thrive, right? I have so much privilege in my life. There are certain aspects of my identity that are embrace and able to thrive, right? I'm a straight person and that is what has privilege in this country. I'm 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 a Christian, that is what has privilege in this country, right? I'm able-bodied. That isn't to say anything about my character or my work ethic. It just means recognizing the current scope of society that we exist in, that I'm favored and and able to thrive. And that's the situation for white people born into a white supremacy society. And so I think that it's just really important to recognize that just from the jump to, to put blatantly, because then what that then allows is a posture of humility to have a lens for how privilege shows up for a white person that wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't show up for a black indigenous or person of color. So I, I, I think that's a really important sort of premise to to operate off of. And then I think quite frankly, I think in order to really do this work of being anti-racist and, and being allies, I think that white people really have to wrestle with together, not not with other Black, Indigenous and people of color, the the connotation that the word racist has melt, meant to well-meaning white people. I've had to adopt a lot of grace towards understanding just how upset white people can get about hearing the word racist or racism because I understand that so many well-meaning white people were raised being told, you see that? That is racist. Racist people are people who are bad people. Racist people are people who see people of color as less than and white people as better, who are intentionally inflicting harm. I recognize there's a whole history of racism being applied to character and intention and a superiority complex that has been ingrained in a lot of white people people who never want to be that. And so then it's a whole thing for them to have to wrestle with the fact that they could be upholding racist structures and doing racist things despite trying to be a good person, wanting to be a good person, and this cognitive dissonance that has come from what they have received the word to be through their upbringing, right? So it's a lot of unlearning, quite frankly, that has to happen alongside learning, which It's hard, but not nearly as hard as existing in oppression as a a Black, Indigenous person of color, right? So the work does have to be done.
0: You did a whole day workshop for sojourners on a lot of this, which I strongly recommend to all of our listeners here. And you talked about how what you're saying now, the privilege, that we have to understand where we have privilege and the humility to recognize the truth in that mm-hmm. that the where we have privilege is 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 just truth <laughs> tell the truth mm-hmm. recognize it and be humble about that and that that's foundational to becoming allies right in your sense of being allies that's pretty yeah. foundational to that right?
1: yeah tell the truth but that should come from hearing the truth right
0: listening to the truth from people who are not like you, who are marginalized and not privileged? Who mm-hmm. do we listen to?
1: Because mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot of allies just go off on their own truth <laughs> uh, based on their own belief about what is the way to do something, which ties in systemic superiority complex, right? Uh, so that truth telling should come from truth listening. So differentiate
0: places. that. That's a really important point. the The truth telling can be uh, part of this privilege that we feel like we have as white people, in particular. So the truth listening—it's a very say what you mean by truth listening. That's really important.
1: Ooh, yeah. So working in that order, in the order that it should be, which is truth listening and then truth telling. That's what I talk about—the centering, right? those closest to the problems are the ones closest to the solutions. And so if you're paying attention, people are letting you know what the problem is, and then also letting you know what they want they want their experience to be, what the solutions can be. And I've seen a lot of pushback from both. I've seen people who um, aren't necessarily coming in to listen. And so anything that they hear about the problem, they're shooting down and saying, I don't think it's that way. You're pulling the race card. It's not always about race. Those are some typical quotes that I'll hear. Um, and slash, or they'll have their own beliefs for what the most effective solutions are. Oftentimes, which is based on um, 100% comfort, as little as as little discomfort as possible. Um, and just a lot of times just really off base. And so as allies, it is the responsibility to hear from those most impacted about what the issues are and what the solutions are. And then the telling piece is so important. I can't express just how much power comes from white people talking to white people about race. I always say that it is powerful and a requirement in my book. For several reasons, it should feel like a conviction, right? One should feel burdened to be able to spread that message, to amplify that message through centering. But also, implicit bias is real. There are studies to show that we favor usually our own in-group, right? And I can tell you from personal experience, I live in the body of a Black woman. And furthermore, as a profession, I teach about race. So I know what I am talking about, but I can't tell you the hundreds of times that when I've been sharing this truth and this knowledge with someone who's got their own issues with racism, that they have not received that from me. And that the difference that it has made the dozens of times when an ally has been alongside and said, This is true. I am white and I am no- this is true, right? Having those conversations when in rooms and with other white people where black, indigenous, and people of color don't have to be in proximity to have to hear all of that. There's so much value in the power of sameness. I know so many people who will say, I do not talk to this relative about race. It always just goes so badly. And so we. We just, we just don't talk about it. And I'm like, no, you're the best person to talk to them because not only do you share sameness that has its bias, not only is there relationships that they may be more willing to hear from you, but since it's a relationship, they can't escape you. You can keep on coming back to them and keep on forcing them to have to engage in this dialogue. And so it is so important that white people aren't just sticking with what they're hearing But they they have to they have to be engaging as many people around them as possible about that truth that they've heard.
0: You're at the table. (laughs) You're at the table with those people, your family, your relatives. You're at the table and they have to listen. Um, So you often also speak. And I want to finish with this because you you've really spoken to us about this. Given what we're talking about here and a day, the day we're talking here. how do we deal with, with weariness and burnout? And there are so many injustices to dismantle. What does self-care look like for an activist like you, who has to tell the truth like you're doing here, help people listen to where they can hear the truth about what's at stake and what the solutions are, but also just to be uh, often just so tired of 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 doing all that, particularly on days like this. How do you how do activists deal with burnout and self-care?
1: Mm. <sighs> well, I'll go ahead and name up front that I am not the best practitioner in it, but I'm working to become better. <laughs> uh, so I definitely have a ways to go and probably do not do that in the most healthy of means. But I have seen some people who do do it very well. And I have noted certain practices for me that have made a difference. And so the first thing that, that I've recognized is just how important it is that self-care is applied to that full self, mind, body, and soul, right? And that I think that sometimes we'll, we'll focus on one, but not all. And all of those really matter. And they're also interconnected. Like when you asked in the beginning, Jim, how my soul was, so much of my response to that had direct tie-ins to how my mind was feeling and how my body was feeling. It's it is wild to to literally feel this in my body, and so I think it's important that when we talk about self care, that we are applying that to all all three of those forms. Um, and some things that I have learned are um, that circumstance also really matters that at least for me, I don't think that, especially if I'm trying to do this for the rest of my life, which I am claiming and hoping to be in, you know, the 90s and 100s. I do not want to be a martyr in this. I'm doing this because all I want us all to experience liberation. Um, I think it would be limiting for me to try to apply sort of a one size fits all approach to my life for self-care that will uh, that will expend years, not to mention even months. So for me, I realized the importance of recognizing what my needs are circumstantially and uh, and applying that accordingly but also recognizing depending on the day how much labor I can give. There are some days where I I really feel like I have the stamina to really dive in deeply and really talk about all of this, really do the work, really be on the front line. And then there are other days where I am literally telling someone I cannot talk about this today. I am at I am at empty already and I have to just officially block that off. And I think that's a powerful thing for me to recognize that my cup has varying levels of fullness day-to-day, hour-to-hour even. And so recognizing that circumstance matters, uh, for me, community has also been very, very important. It's really important for me to be able to have space with other Black people, with other Black and Brown and Indigenous and people of color, with other women, Black women and women of color, that's been really important because there's something powerful in that healing. That is not reverse racism. That is not a thing. uh, Anything that you put a reverse in front of, uh, we've got a problem. (laughs) But there is important, there is value in carving out community with others who have a similar experience where you can just enter in as you and not feel like you're going to have to show up in a different sort of way that makes others comfortable, not have to show up in a way that others are going to be watching like as a show. But also we can enter in just sharing. This is my experience, and people are meeting you there, acknowledging that, as opposed to you having to explain it or prove that. So having other community with people like me has made a difference. But then, lastly, what I just apply as a template for myself is the triple R's: um, reflect, recharge, recommit. And um, that's really been important for me in this work uh, because, like I, I, I think. I think it's important to recognize that we are human and especially from an ally standpoint, it can kind of be a little self-righteous. Like I can't control my face anymore, Jim. I used to be really good at it, but now how I'm, th- what I'm thinking is on my face. And I, I used to have a reaction on my face <laughs> where, when what and still do, when white people will say something like, I'm going to be doing this work for years. You can count it. I'm not, I am not getting going. And then I can personally, I can personally know relationships that, where people have left the work or even relationships that have that, uh, where people have left the work because our relationship has been impacted by, by me calling out race. Right. And, and these are the same people who said that they, they were in it for life. So, uh, I think it can be kind of self-righteous to say that we we're in it for life when you just never know when you're going to leave or if you're going to leave. And so I try to take, choose this work as a daily commitment. Where I want to be in it in for the long harm, but long term. But every day I reflect on how I did. Right? How did I do today? Where could I have shown up better? And there's always ways that I could have been better. And then I recharge. Right? So. Service never sleeps, really never really sleeps either, but symbolically, you know, I rest, I recharge. Like self-care is so important, whether you're doing this from the lens of an activist or the lens of being an ally, whatever self-care looks like is different for different people. And then the next day I recommit and do the best that I can that day. So reflect, recharge, recommit. And to bring that all home, DeRay McKesson wrote a book in 2018 that was talking about a case for hope. And he talks about how uh, hope is, I'm paraphrasing, hope is the belief that we can build a better tomorrow than today. And that just helped bring everything home for me, Jim, because I was like, I take this triple R, reflect, recharge, recommit on a daily basis, and every day I can try to make work towards tomorrow being better. And that just helps me feel like this is a manageable way for me to approach this very difficult work Each day.
0: Glad you're finishing with hope because that's exactly what I wanted to. First of all, those who are listening and feel these issues so deeply, listen to the wisdom you just heard about self care. Now, Peggy Flanagan, wonderful uh, lieutenant governor of Minnesota, highest ranking indigenous native woman in state government, was on this podcast and she talked about COVID and she said, We're not going to go back to normal, we're going to go back to getting better. Want to go back to getting better, which I so you're hunkered down in Georgia. I'm hunkered down here with our families, and as you think about what COVID is revealing and showing, exposing, but also showing us, it's showing us what's broken for sure in our systems and structures. It's also there are signs of hope about how people are responding to each other, and we don't we're not we don't have leadership in Washington, but a lot of people around the country are showing some amazing things. So. Post-COVID, post-COVID, when we ever get out of this, where's your hope?
1: My hope is uh, in lessons learned and the potential for what we can build. COVID has been so awful, and not I, not a single life should have been lost to this. And it's just awful how much life has been lost and how much life loss could have been prevented, quite frankly. Um, and... At the same time, the urgency of the crisis has forced some intentional lens for shifting in certain systems. And I would hope that we can only deepen that lens and, and focus that lens more for some potential long-term shifting, right? Like you you hear all this narrative from people that I never would have heard before about healthcare access and how everybody should be getting Free healthcare when it comes to uh, with this situation. Well, why can't why can't everybody have free healthcare uh, beyond this? Healthcare is all right, right? You're hearing conversation that I have never heard in my in my millennial life. Uh, um, so broadly around the criminal legal system and people who are incarcerated and letting people out, right? Uh, and who should who should uh, who should be behind bars? Which I have my own opinions about. I don't know if any human should really be in cages for life. But my point being, um, about you're hearing conversations around the criminal legal system and incarceration that in full form that I I have not heard in my life. You're seeing school systems take approaches to really being having access for all of their kids, being able to work virtually, recognizing the different circumstances that they're in. You're hearing narrative about essential workers, right? And how much we've depended on essential workers to be able to keep things going. So So why shouldn't they be being paid a lot more than they're getting paid since we need them so much, right? So there's where some of my hope is that uh, I'm careful about using the word opportunity because I never want to see a pandemic and so much harm message as an opportunity, right? But I do want to lean into what potential can come in terms of transformation and change. And so that's what I'm really thinking about. And then I hope that, um, I think that, Everybody has been impacted by this, whether whether they know or realize that they have or not. And the narrative around mental health and the need for proximity and, has been really important. There's a reason why solitary confinement is the worst punishment that someone can get when they're incarcerated. and this has just really shown the importance of human connection which I really think is a beautiful, beautiful thing that I hope also just people really value and deepen uh, coming
0: mm-hmm. coming around the
1: corner for this as well.
0: Whitney Parnell, thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Jim. You are an inspiration, been an inspiration for years, and I'm just really honored to be able to hold space with you and dialogue about this with you and also just want to name the power um, and relief that comes with talking to a white person so intentionally and intensely about race and how you receive that through the posture of humility and a charge for the work
0: thank you again for joining us to find out more about service never sleeps visit serviceneversleeps.com and find them on twitter at service insomnia i love that service insomnia. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. This is Jim Wallace with the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.